Uh, it's a real joy. Thank you for inviting me to, to preach, um, for taking that risk. Uh, pray that the Lord would bless you this morning uh, as we come to his word together. And I want to begin um, just by acknowledging my appreciation and thankfulness to the Lord for um, my friendship with these three or three pastors. Um, I remember my first introduction. This doesn't count in my 25 minutes, does it? My... Um, my first introduction to Sovereign Grace was a conference in Bath, and I turned up early, and I was greeted by a hug uh, by this person I didn't know who, who it was. It turned out to be Bob Coughlin. Uh, but he just, I turned up in a theatre, and he hugged me, and then Nathan welcomed me as he walked down. I thought, how does he know my name? And then, of course, there's a name badge. And so uh, it's, it's just been a great joy to, to get to know them and to be uh, considered friends. And, and so thank you as well for allowing the time um, for them to invest in, in this friendship. They're a great support to me. Now, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Luke 12, 32. It'll be up on the screen in a, in a moment. And uh, we're going to work through this text. And the bullet points are just... The, the text pretty much, okay? So if you're taking notes, that's where we're going. We're just going to walk through the text together. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading the paper, and uh, an article caught my eye, and it said, uh, five signs you are suffering from N-F-O-G-O. Well, it's N-F-O-G-O, the new fear of going out, okay? And there are five, five signs to diagnose yourself, okay? And these are the five signs of suffering from this new condition. Now, I guess it's the opposite of the fear of missing out. It's, this is the fear of going out. And um, these are the five signs. Okay, so the first one is you are checking the weather forecast. And you're hoping for a heat wave so that you can eat outside. And you find yourself saying things like, it's actually going to be a balmy 12 degrees on Saturday. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a shame to miss out on all that May sunshine? Or your newly hug adverse. Now, I, I'm sure this will affect your church probably a bit more than mine. Uh, we translate holy kiss as firm handshake. But your newly hug adverse. So pre-pandemic, you thought nothing of going in for the full continental or sovereign grace hug and a kiss or two, but that holds rather less appeal. As your friend launches herself towards you like it's 2019, you find yourself visibly flinching, possibly even recoiling in unconcealed horror. An element of physical distancing is still fine for now. Thank you very much. Or you're nostalgic for nights in. Some friends are busy arranging gatherings, get-togethers in their home, but not for you. You would much rather be at home in your pyjamas watching a box set. It just seems all too much to get properly dressed, and you're safe on the sofa. Or you're making excuses. Maybe you've got a slight cold, or you've perhaps got an Ocado delivery arriving or you've got a work commitment that can't possibly rearranged, be rearranged. And you assure your friends that you will meet up with them next time, as long as next time it's on Zoom. <laughs> Fifth and final, you're checking local infection levels. You're working out the precise 
statistical likelihood of contracting the new variant on your trip to Tesco or the Kent variant or any other variant of capable of slightly, slightly penetrating your vaccinated mask sanitized body. It could happen. You read it somewhere and you are not taking any chances. I don't know whether any of you are suffering from that condition. Now, my point is not to side with those who are crying freedom and who are sick of the regulations and want everything to open fully immediately, nor to mock those who have the opposite view, but merely to point out that fear affects us. It affects our behavior. It changes what we do. Just reading through those, those five symptoms, if you like, it can lead to inactivity. We talk about being paralyzed with fear. What does that mean? Not doing something. Not taking any chances. We lose confidence and courage. We isolate ourselves. We put things off. If we're afraid of them, I'll do it tomorrow. No, I'll do it the next day, and so on. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, commands his followers not to fear. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The context of this verse is seeking the kingdom of God. Look at verse uh, 31, if you're there in the Bibles. I've seen some of these uh, sermons on just these one-verse wonders, and I know that your pastors don't stick to one verse, and they, they go rain, but they say it's one verse. But anyway, verse 31, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then the command comes, fear not. And then you go a bit further back, and the context is that we are to seek after the things of God, rather than the riches of this world. Chapter 12, verse 15 to 21, you have the parable of the rich fool who has lots of stuff and then builds bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns and then sits down and says, take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. And then we're told in the parable that that night the Lord says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then the Lord says, you don't need to worry about these things. Your Father knows what you need. So we are to pursue the kingdom. What does that mean? To pursue, to seek after the kingdom of God. Well, in a sense, we're in the kingdom of God. God is sovereign. God rules over all this moment. Every molecule in the universe is his. But specifically... <clears throat> that to seek the kingdom is to go after God and the things of God. We'll define it like this. To seek the kingdom is to seek to love, delight in, live in line with, and declare the reign of God in Christ, who died, was buried, rose again, and ascended, and will return in glory. To seek the kingdom is to go after those things, to seek to love God more, to delight in Him more, to seek to live by His truths more, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so seeking the kingdom affects how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we speak. And Jesus knows that doing these things can be a fearful thing. The result of doing these things is a fearful thing, hence the command to fear not. The logic in Jesus' mind is to seek the kingdom 
means that trouble, opposition, and hardship might come. There are things that we may be afraid of. A fear may descend on the people of God as they declare the message of the kingdom and live according to its values in a world that opposes the gospel and the implications of the gospel. Opposition will come. Opposition did come. We know that through Scripture, through history. Opposition is still about now. And Jesus tenderly commands them, the disciples in the immediate context, and us, if we're his people, not to fear. And he gives us great comfort and hope and strength in the promise that follows. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's kingdom, uh, Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. We live in a culture, don't we, that is increasingly running away from its Christian heritage. And opposition is increasing. If we think of some of the laws that passed the last few years, just a few weeks ago, a street preacher was arrested and uh, the offensive uh, text that he read was, so God created them in his own image, male and female, he created them. Uh, God, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That man was arrested. Uh, he was later released without charge. But that just gives a sense of kind of the environment, the temperature of what's going on. Perhaps we're fearful as we, we see that kind of anti-Christian ideas coming to the front. We're, fe we're fearful of losing face, of, of reputation, or of family, of friends, or uh, friends at school. Maybe if we, we think we might say, quotes the wrong thing, or support quotes the wrong cause, or we propose the wrong policies. And we can become fearful, and we've seen how fear controls people can stop us from acting, stop us from seeking. And then we have fear in the general sense, not just of living, seeking the kingdom, but fear in life. <coughs> People fear different things, don't they? Stage of life, cultural background. What we think is important can all impact what we fear. Some perhaps are anxious over their job situation and problems with the economy, some, it may be health concerns and fear of the future, fear of what may be. Others are fearful due to old age. I'm never quite sure where to look when I say fearful of old age. No, normally, it's my mother-in-law, but she's not here. Um, <clears throat> fear of losing independence, fear of death. And in a church the size of Grace Church, there will be people afraid of all of these things and much more besides. We're just fearful people. And all of those things can stop us seeking the kingdom, stop us following Christ, stop us preaching the gospel. And so the Lord Jesus gives this command to his people, fear not. It's an often repeated command in the Bible. And peculiarly, it often comes at times when there is reason to fear. You know, the shepherds, <laughs> they're just minding their own business, and then all of a sudden the sky's lit up, fear not. Well, what do you expect us to do? But here, fear not, is the command. And why does he say, well, fear not, or don't be anxious, is, is the theme moving through the text, if you look a bit earlier. He knows the immediate problems that these disciples who he's speaking to will face. Famine, persecution, hunger, sword, sorrow, sickness. And he knows that his people will face those things throughout history. 
He knows the concerns of life. He knows your concerns of life as he says, fear not. And look how he addresses this group of disciples and his people. Fear not, little flock. What what a lovely term the Lord uses for his people, little flock. The, The flock imagery is imagery used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Jesus, you will know, is called, he says, I'm the good shepherd and I lay myself down, my life down for my sheep. After the resurrection, Jesus says to Peter that he is to feed my sheep and feed my lambs. And so this command, this reassurance comes from Jesus who loves his little flock. And this little flock is his people. Those who love him, those who trust him. And so before we move any further, we have to ask the question, are you in this little flock? Are are you in the people of God? Are you trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, for forgiveness of sins? And that offer to be included in this little flock which has the affection of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is open to you this morning. to enjoy the tender care of the Saviour and his Father. This phrase, little flock, communicates something, doesn't it? He, He knows us. He knows what we're like. Think of lambs in the field. We have lambs in the field running by us, and they're small, and they're tender, and they're fragile, and they're kind of weak, and they're vulnerable, and they easily get lost. Just the other day I was driving past and, and lambs seem to, to be able to get through gates but not get through the other way. And so they're on the wrong side of the fence bleating for their mothers. He knows what we're like. It's a, an image of, of helplessness and, and frailty and, and weakness. And he cares. Little flock. The, these words come from the mouth of gentle and lowly Jesus. From, from the, they come from the mouths of the good shepherd who laid down his life for his little flock. Using that phrase shows he, he cares. It's, it's kind of, there's a preciousness to it, a, a tenderness to it, a, a warmth, a gentleness. Fear not, little, little flock. It communicates affection. Oh, this is the reason. Why not be afraid? Well, it's appropriate, isn't it, to be afraid sometimes? Is it appropriate for a lamb to be afraid if it's being stalked by a fox? Or it's fear. It's appropriate if, if uh, someone who is weak is, is faced with someone who is strong and who wants to do them harm. Why say fear not when very soon the might of Rome will be against Christ and his kingdom? These disciples would be outcasts. Well, look at his answer. He doesn't say, grit your teeth. Doesn't find, say, find some inner strength. No, what does he do? He lifts our eyes. For it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your Father. Your Father in heaven. Your, your Father who made the heavens and the earth. Your father, whom 
for whom nothing is too, too hard for him, nothing can take him by surprise, nothing is out of his control, no one can defeat him. He's your Father who loves you the most, who knows what you need precisely at any given moment and is able to provide all that you need. In the great hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, a paraphrase of Psalm 103, Father-like he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows, in his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. And think of what he did to bring you into his family. That's the expression of the Father's love for you. The Father gave his Son. Think how undeserving you are this morning of being in the family of God. It's staggering. Jim Packer's a quote come up, will come up, says, Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, bought in for supper, and given the family name. Your Father knows you. And He loves you. John 17, 22 and 23, where Jesus is praying to the Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, so that they may be one, even as we as one. I and them and you and me, so they may become perfectly one. So what? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Notice what He says, that that as the, the glory of the Father is given to us, that's so the world would know that the Father loves us the same as he loves the Son. So your Father in heaven, if you're a believer, loves you with the same measure, the same passion with which he loves his perfect Son, Jesus Christ. It's this Father who will care for you. And what does he do, this father? Well, he gives with good pleasure. He's generous. He's always been generous. It's in his nature. We could say he can't help it. But to doubt the goodness and generosity of God is the original sin, isn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden. And God says, well, you can eat, you can eat from every single tree but one. There's all this bounty for you. But Adam and Eve think, no, we want that one, because God is not good. We don't believe his word. He's generous. He's holding something back from us. No, the, the, the rule, the prohibition was that they would have life. And this sin, not thinking that God is good, or not thinking that God is gracious, or not thinking that God is, gives by nature, is something that besets us. It's in the human heart. We, we need to be reminded that God is good and generous all of the time. Look at the manner in which the Father gives. It's not that He just gives. He gives with good pleasure. Not begrudgingly or meanly or miserly because He has to because He's God. No, He, he does it and he, it brings Him joy. The New Living Translation is a bit of a paraphrase, I know, but the, the translation of this verse is, don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. It delights Him to be generous towards His children. Mike Reeves, in his book, The Good God, makes the comment about people in general, but I think, sadly, it can be true of Christians too. Christians too. 
This is what he says. The tragedy is that so many think that the living God is the devilish one here, as if he created us simply to get, to demand, to take from us. But the contrast between the devil and the triune God could, not be, could hardly be starker. The first is empty, hungry, grasping, envious. The second is superabundant, generous, radiant, and self-giving. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus is, is, says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He delights to give, and we don't have because we do not ask, not because he doesn't want to give. And what is he going to give? What, what's the comfort? What's the solace? What's the reason for the command, fear not, for it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? We could define the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. I think that's uh, Graham Goldsworth, he came up with that kind of phrase first of all. It's the place where God's rule is unchallenged, where everything is as it ought to be. It's what we are to seek now, knowing we can experience some of it now, but we will experience it more fully and truly later. The, the Hebrew word shalom sums up the kind of nature of the kingdom of God well. Shalom is often translated peace in our, in our Bible, but it's more than that. It's abundance of life. It's peace. It's joy. It's delight. It's rest. It's the blessing of the kingdom. That's what he's, he's going to give to us, and he's going to delight to give to us in all of its fullness. And what has, been, what has been given so far to us? I mean, how can we guarantee we're going to get that? That's a question, because we don't experience all of that now, do we? Perfect joy or perfect peace or perfect rest. We don't experience that now, but what's the guarantee? Well, there are some things that we have in Christ now. Forgiveness, it's a blessing of the kingdom. Adoption, joy, hope, communion with God. But we will be able to enjoy all of those things in the future. All of the blessings of knowing God without sin, without Satan, and without suffering, spoiling it. That's what God the Father is going to give to us. And we know He will give it to us in the future because He has given us the greatest gift in the kingdom now. And that's the King. The greatest gift of the kingdom is the King, Jesus. He is the most precious one of our beloved Heavenly Father. And He gave Him freely and with joy. Paul in Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, his famous verses you will know, but he, he, that's his logic. His logic is at the end is God has given you his son, therefore what else, what else do you need? And whatever happens, you, you still have all things because you have the son. So let me read some verses from Romans 8, verse uh, 32, and then Dana a bit further. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the logic? 
He's given us His Son. How will He not give us, graciously give us all things? There's more to come. <clears throat> and then at verse 38, for I'm sure that life, not, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus in this verse says, it's the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom, and he can't fail. It's guaranteed. We'll end with this quote from J.C. Ryle, an Anglican in the 19th century. This is what he says. Are we members of Christ's little flock? I hope you are. Then surely we ought not be afraid. There are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. God is ours and Christ is ours. Greater are those that are for us than all that is against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are mighty enemies. But with Christ on our side, we have no cause to fear. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. Let's pray.